Hello and welcome along once again to It'll Be Alright in the 90s, the podcast that loves Wembley Stadium, but wants to see FA Cup semi-finals returning to neutral venues. And while you're at it, bring back endless replays as well. I'm Stu Joslin and joining me as always is last week's birthday boy, Alex Greenwood. Greeny, good evening. How was your special day last week, mate? Oh, it's very nice. Thank you. Yeah, I celebrated the the event side of things with uh, with a pub crawl, which I love. A, a well-regimented pub crawl around Bristol, which was fantastic. And then on the day itself, I got to take away and watch a 90s film. So there you go. Perfect. I was going to ask if there was any sort of 90s angle to your day. Which film was it? Can I ask? It was called A River Runs Through It. It's definitely 90s. It's one of the early 90s films mm-hmm. directed by Robert Redford, starring a youngish Brad Pitt. And yeah, it was good. Seven out of ten. Excellent. Well, I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear that I have never seen that film. We're very excited about today's episode. It's with an interviewee that we've been wanting to get on the podcast for a long time. It's Nigel Tassel. He's a best-selling uh, music and sport author. He took some time out from his busy schedule to come and talk to me uh, a few weeks ago. It was a really great interview and we're really looking forward to you hearing it. But of course, we need a sponsor for our episode tonight. And Alex, the forward video sponsorship uh, for our movies of 1993 episode was so well received i've been in talks with another caution based business to see if they want to uh, piggyback on the success of the forward video sponsorship and and get in on the act uh, so i'm pleased to say that our sponsor this time is modern air of caution uh, and listeners to the podcast can get 10 percent off of a ben from a1 a rachel from friends or a gazer at euro 96 if they quote the code all right 90s at the checkout when paying so that's modern air of caution tonight's sponsors thank you so much guys for getting involved that's fantastic i don't i, I can't remember modern air what was what was modern air modern air was a, a hairdresser a hairdressing salon oh see i was a strawberry fields kind of guy so ah fair enough a bit further down the high street yeah yeah, yeah. i remember them having very prominent adverts on uh, on on gwr at the time in the uh, oh, wow in, in the mid 90s so obviously a bit of advertising clout behind them yeah. and uh, the, the pr guys have decided to get involved with us as well so so really really pleased about that yeah fantastic I assume Will Hodgson is still remaining the official barber of the pod, though. This is not. Oh, of course. No, absolutely no question about that. And Hepcats is still the official barber shop of the pod. It just so happens that Modern Air are sponsoring us tonight. Yeah. OK, great. Do hairdressing salons have counters? I did say you should go to the counter and quote the code, but I don't think they do really, do they? They have one of those sort of very small counters. It's just got space for mm-hmm. the till and maybe the clipboard that's got the, the day's appointments on it. Yeah, yeah. OK. Go to the shelf and quote the code, all right, 90s. <laughs> time now to dip into the post bag, I think for the first time in a couple of episodes. So let's let's see what's in there. Um, shall I there start to The mailbag in action. Well, seeing as you're rifling through it at the moment, yes, I think you should. Yeah, okay. So this comes in from new legend of the pod, Hannah Kelly. This relates to our primary school episode because Hannah has sent in a message about a school trip that she went on in the 90s. And she says, one of my most embarrassing primary school experiences was on a school trip where we went to the beach and a few of us were playing in the sea with a teacher throwing seaweed at each other. And someone dared me to put seaweed down a teacher's swim shorts. Stu, what would you do if someone dared you to do that? I think I would I would take the take the hit from my friends and I wouldn't go anywhere near it. I would uh, I would certainly not even entertain the thought. But I'm guessing 
that Hannah actually went ahead with this. Yes, contrary to what most rational people would do uh, in such circumstances, uh, she says, of course I had to do it. He was very shocked and I was immediately very apologetic and we never spoke of it again. Um, <laughs> that makes me shudder, the awkwardness of that memory that isn't even mine. Um, oh, good Lord. Can no. you imagine? Can you imagine? So we should probably move on quickly while I um, try and stop myself shuddering. A, a brief message from Mannix Mitchell, another new legend of the pod, who simply says, blimey, legendary status, thanks very much. I'm glad the envelope of cash I sent in did the job. Well, I, I had to message him back and say, we haven't received an envelope of cash, so either it's lost in the post or Jeff has intercepted it and uh, and gone off yeah. and used it for his own nefarious means. So That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, we're going to have to do some further investigation into that, I think. But Alex, don't send cash through the post. You know where I live. Just bring it round. <laughs> it's, it's the most efficient way. And then we, we know then, don't we? We know. It's all fine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, well-deserved, uh, the, the status, regardless of the uh, the bung you, uh, you attempted <laughs> to uh, offer us there. It wasn't necessary in the end. And this is just coming in. Actually, this is hot off the press, as it were. Hot out of the mailbag, I suppose. Uh, this is from also another new legend of the pod, Adam Greenwood, who has sent in a message regarding the films of 1993 from a couple of episodes back. And he says the following. Again, it's a, it's a real um, it's a real essay, so I won't read it all out, but you should definitely go and check it out. It's on our Facebook page underneath our post for this episode, so go mm-hmm. and check it out. But this is the abridged version. He says, it's absolutely mind-blowing that Spielberg made Schindler's List and Jurassic Park back-to-back. Most directors don't make a film as good as just one of those uh, in their entire career. So to make two back-to-back that good is is incredible, uh, even after 20 years of hype. And this goes contrary to what I said about my memories. He says he doesn't actually remember seeing Jurassic Park in the cinema, um, despite me remembering him going to see it in the cinema and and me (laughs) not going because I was too scared. But I can confirm, Adam, that you did go and see it in the cinema. And Secret Garden as well, he says he knows that we went as a family, but he can't remember it. I, I don't think he's got a great memory, it would seem, for uh, for the early 90s. But he does say he remembers that it had a... He agrees with me, agrees with me in terms of the uh, the sense of vibe and tone that the uh, Secret Garden had. So we definitely agree on that. Uh, he also says he thinks he went to see Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3 in the cinema, which he has a soft spot for. I can confirm that we did definitely go and see that in the cinema. Uh, He says, I never liked Men in Tights. The Robin Hood folklore was always too close to my heart to be able to poke fun at it, which is, again, agrees with what I said. That runs deep in in the Greenwood Brotherhood, doesn't it? It Any any sort of satire on Robin Hood is not going to be countenanced whatsoever. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's, it's a sacred, sacred film franchise and character in, in our household, for sure. He says, El Mariachi is a film that was a big deal in the early 2000s when I was studying film at university, a sort of legendary exercise in low-budget filmmaking. I've never heard of El Mariachi, so I guess it's testament to how low-budget it was. Uh, Shout-out there from My Neighbour Totoro, uh, which I think got shouted out on the episode itself. And then finally he says, Surf Ninjas also came out this year. This is a film I feel is probably better left unwatched it's such a cool title, and, and I'm in no doubt it'll be absolute rubbish. I'd rather allow it to exist in my imagination as a perfect film, which sounds sensible to me. I've also never seen it. No, I can't say I've ever heard of that one either. Um, but thanks so much for your input, Adam. It's always gratefully received. And we always look forward to your rundowns of, uh, of the movies of, of the year when we, when we talk about them. It's almost becoming a feature of the podcast on its own, isn't it? 
It is, yeah. And uh, well, maybe a future guest for our film episodes. So um, you won't be reduced to just sending in messages after the event and you can actually get involved in the conversation as it happens. Perhaps we could alternate Andy and uh, Adam as our film experts for the rest of the series. What do you think? Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Okay, we'll talk to their lawyers. <laughs> I've got something here from regular correspondent George Alty. This is in response to something we posted on Twitter last week. Um, this is a story that hit the news with the uh, commencement of the Women's World Cup out in Australia and New Zealand and the fact that uh, the England goalkeeper shirt isn't available as a replica. So there are lots of uh, young girls and adults who aren't able to buy uh, Mary Earps' number one shirt. And we took to Twitter to obviously uh, throw our weight behind this cause and, and give our solidarity with Mary Earps. And uh, George replied, I took my granddaughter into the Doncaster Rover shop and she went straight for the goalkeeper shirt and got her £10 spending money out. So there we go. Girls do want replica goalkeeper shirts. We love replica goalkeeper shirts on the pod. So, Mike, please do get it sorted out and uh, and get a Mary Earp shirt out for all of us there who'd like it, please. Yeah, absolutely. It's scandalous that that wasn't available in the shops. So um, it needs rectifying immediately. Right. So we got a lot of correspondence in regarding our snack food discussion that we had a few episodes back. Actually, it was ages ago now back in episode 16, if I recall. Uh, and I put it out on the social media asking people again, you know, what is the most 90s snack food? Do you agree with me and Stu? Because Stu, you chose the Cadbury's Astro. I chose the Push Pop. Um, and we got a lot of good responses to this. So I'll just go through them now. On Instagram, UK 90s Nostalgia said, Push Pops, uh, you always end up with a massively sticky finger once the saliva is dribbled down the side. Uh, <laughs> on the inside of the tube, I should say. Which I think I did reference when we were having this debate um, because it is my abiding memory of the one time I bought a Push Pop was um, just how disgusting that was and how impractical. Uh, so I'm definitely on board with that. Uh, and then Timothy Parker, Legend of the Pod, says... Push Pop has got to be number one, with an honourable mention to Space Invaders. They're still available today, but a snack I definitely associate with the 90s. I can agree with that for sure. I think some things, even if they're still available today, are still tied very heavily to the 90s, regardless of, of that. So, good shout there, Tim. Are they still 10p a packet? That's true. I mean, with, with current food prices and inflation, they're probably significantly more than that. Mm, about four um, quid. Yeah, I always prefer Tangy Toms myself. Moving over to Twitter now, Stu Zanone has said it has to be Push Pops. The cola ones were always so hard to get. And he's also posted a picture of Jolly Rancher. Uh, and he says these were a huge craze too, although they tasted like crap. I think I've mentioned before on the pod that I have only had Jolly Ranchers once and I almost choked on them the one time. It was on a school residential trip to Slimbridge wetland uh, centre in Gloucestershire my first ever residential trip in primary school Daniel Powell's bought a packet of Jolly Ranchers they were like American sweets it was all very exotic and I tried one and then almost choked on it and now every time just seeing that picture on Twitter now is making me feel like I've got something in my throat it's amazing how wow. much of an impact that had I should probably have another one and just try and get over that but um, but like he says they do this like crap so I probably won't so that's twice already in this episode, we've been sort of psychologically burned once by Hannah Kelly's PE teacher story and now by some Jolly Ranchers from 30 years ago. Yeah. Dan from the Odd Pod says these two popped into my mind first, Jawbreakers and Sherbet Straws. And he's posted a couple of pictures of them, so you should check them out on Twitter. I've got a couple of very small anecdotes about these as well. Uh, the first one also relating to a residential trip. 
this time to Danny Wenault in South Wales when I was in year six. Christopher Pierce bought one of these in the service station on the way out, <laughs> on the way to the trip. And he's, I think by the time we came back from the week-long residential trip, he still had about a golf ball size worth of it. He every every now and again he would just get it out of his pocket and like lick it for a bit <laughs> and then put it back in his pocket and it just lasted so long. I just thought that is entirely impractical as a sweet. All uh, the fluff and, and shit stuck to it. Yeah. It must have been awful. Yeah, gross. Because in my memory, it's about the size of a cricket ball. I, I think maybe they're not as big as that, but they're. I mean, they're way too big to put in your mouth. So I mean, just a crazy sweet. Mm. Uh, and then sherbet straws. At my lowest ebb at secondary school, me and Matt Cox used to hang around after school and try and find like dropped pennies and two peas and five peas just around school. And then anything we found, we would go to the local newsagent and uh, buy sherbet straws with them. And looking back, it was just pathetic, really. I don't know what we would, why I reduced myself to that. But, you know, these things happen when you're, um, you're desperate for sugar and you've got, you're at a loose end in, in year seven. Listeners, you'll have to excuse me for a second. Is everything all right, Alex? <laughs> it was before I started doing this episode. I'm, I, all Do you these... want to stop recording for a bit? Should we, we take a bit of time out so you can, you know, take a breath, recover? Uh, I don't know. No, I think we just have to push through. We'll push through. Okay. Um, Channel Nem is coming with something a bit different here that I don't have any traumatic childhood memories associated with because uh, he's gone for the Cadbury Secret, which I don't think I remember. Do you remember the Cadbury Secret? No, no, I don't think so. So what does it look like? Well, from the picture he's posted, which looks like it's from an old advert, uh, it looks kind of sort of lined. It looks like the size of maybe a twirl, like a single finger version of a twirl, maybe a bit thicker. The packaging is gold, secret written in, purple scripts. There's not much to go on here, really, but it looks like a woman's hand. I think by the, the, the font, and the, the look of it, it looks like it's maybe aimed more at female purchases, like a flake would be. Um, mm-hmm. Not that we agree with all that sort of nonsense, gendering of, of chocolate, but that looks like how maybe it was targeted at the time. But I don't even recognise the packaging. And I'm quite big on snack food packaging <laughs> in terms of memories. This this doesn't ring any bells at all. Well, if anyone has ever enjoyed a Cadbury secret, then uh, please do write in and let us know what it was like for sure. Maybe they were just kept a secret. That's why. You either know or you don't know because you weren't ah, yes. secret. The clues in the name. Yeah. Uh, Request the 90s simply says one word, and that one word is twiglets. Can't you be argued have, with. Can't argue with that, can you? And then finally, uh, Legend of the Pod, again, Adam Greenwood says, cheese and chai flavour, Spice Girls special edition Walker's Crisps, which I think have probably come up on the pod before. Fantastic flavour, great tie-in. Um, what time to be alive that was absolutely wonderful that was my pick of the submissions I would have to say were the uh, were definitely the Spice Girls walkers have you got anything else over there so you remember last week I gave you a few options for for, for some things I had to bring to the table and you chose yeah. the Jurassic Park premiere in Carmarthen which was which was a great story so I've got a few more things here that I can uh, that I can bring to the podcast this week so there's either still on the table we've got uh, the status quo on GMTV or my reaction to cliffhanger or the biggest telling off I ever received at primary school <laughs> that sounds like a good one I'm going to save that let's go for your reaction to cliffhanger reaction to cliffhanger okay so in an attempt to 
try and catch up with some of the movies that we that we speak about on on the pod obviously we did movies in 1993 a couple of episodes ago and cliffhanger was one that our good friend andy sales uh chose to speak about i i went and watched it that weekend well, i say i went and watched it i watched it at home obviously it's not in the cinema and uh just just in order to try and catch myself up a little bit and i have to say i have to say he was absolutely right in his summation it is not a relaxing movie in the slightest in the first 10 minutes, uh, Sly's character fails to uh, stop someone from, from falling off uh, the top of a cliff while they're being rescued. Uh, and then it, it sort of gets worse from there, really. There's a lot of shouting. Um, there's a lot of kicking people in the face. There's a lot of stabbing. There's a lot of shooting. Uh, there's a lot of swearing. It's a it's a good two hours. It, it never lags. Um, and, and I just love Sly anyway, of course. So, so finally got around to watch a cliffhanger, didn't uh, watch it on my dad's old VHS, I'm afraid, didn't quite get that far. Um, but consider that now one movie that is off the list and that I'm able to now join in with a conversation with. So maybe next time Andy comes on, we'll review cliffhanger again and I'll be able to take a bit more part. I think maybe you should start watching, start now watching all the films of 1994, just so <laughs> you're ready for when we do that episode. Every film that was released in 1994. Yeah. Okay, right. I'm on it. Uh, there was actually a little bit more correspondence that I'd forgotten about until now, uh, which was, which is actually very apt because it's uh, from George Ulti on YouTube. So, of course, we forgot about it. Uh, this was under the primary school episode. Uh, and he says, I remember Stiltskin. When did we talk about Stiltskin? That was uh, What's the Most 90s British Rock Band. Of course it was, yes. I remember Stiltskin. Christmas 94, I got my wife a double rock CD on my shopping trip to Bath, which included this track. Uh, she almost didn't get it, though, as I left my shopping on the train when I got off at Chippenham. I went to the office and they put a call into Swindon. A guard got it off the coach and put it on the next train west. Don't get that service today, do you? I love the idea of there being, like, this seat reserved and it's just got a bag with a steel CD <laughs> on it. And then there's, like, someone with white gloves who, like, carefully takes it off the train and hands it to the to the people. That's um, absolutely brilliant. I'm so glad that uh, that Diane got her got her double rock CD with the Skillstein track on it for Christmas 94. And uh, many thanks to the good people at, at British Rail for, for sorting that out at the time. Yeah, he does say here, which is testament to how far things have fallen since the demise of British Rail, nationalised the railways. He says, uh, I know you don't get that service today because I repeated the trick about two years ago. Just where are my mud guards now? So this is, you can consider this an official call out from the pod. If you have seen a pair of mud guards on a westbound express train between Chippenham and the southeast, please do return them to George Alty because he is waiting for these mudguards. Well, I'll be amazed if they've got that far because uh, he lives up north now. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but you weren't to know that. You weren't to know that. <laughs> they're, they're out there somewhere. We'll we'll get them back. <laughs> Time now for what's the most nineties. And this, well, I don't know about you, Stu, this is one that took me a lot of thinking, but I'm asking you today what the most 90s soft drink or juice-based drink is. This one actually came to me very quickly indeed. I have very fond memories of a particular brand of soft drink from the 90s, uh, not produced anymore. Uh, Sainsbury's Classic Cola is what I'm going for. So this is the uh, own brand cola drink from Sainsbury's available during the 90s. And I have fond memories of this particular brand because of my year four primary school teacher Mrs Johnson who had in her cupboard a stash of diet classic cola cans 
and would, at intervals throughout the school day, send members of the class to the cupboard to go and fetch her a Diet Classic Cola. Um, and if you got asked to do that, it was like a very sort of proud moment if you got asked to go and fetch the cola for her. I remember on one occasion, a friend of mine in the class, James Wickham, shook the can up before giving it to her. The temptation proved too much with very predictable results. <laughs> but I remember it being at home as well because, uh, you know, my parents did, did their food shopping at Sainsbury's at the time. So we, we would normally have a, a two litre classic cola uh, on the go at home as well. So, so uh, yeah, Sainsbury's classic cola for me. I think I remember this being launched. It being like kind of kind of a big thing that they had their own brand of Coke, which seems sort of strange now to think of supermarkets not having their own brand of Coke because just everyone hmm. does now. And Coke's been around for so long. So I'm sure, I, maybe I'm wrong, and it, it wasn't launched in the 90s, but I, I'm, I think I remember it. But yeah, good choice. Very, very 90s. Uh, and presumably they just don't do it anymore, do they? Is it just Sainsbury's Coke? I believe it is, yes. Or Sainsbury's Cola, as, as it would be. But yes, it's not, uh, it's not classic. I mean, when I said it took me a while to think of something here, it wasn't because I couldn't think of anything. It's because I had so many answers, I just couldn't narrow it down. So my first thought was Cresta, but then I thought, actually, that's quite an old thing, I think, that, you know, lived into the 90s and not much longer. So I couldn't go with that. Then I was going to go for Umbongo, a previous sponsor of the pod, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a good case to be made, I think, for Tango because of their very 90s adverts. Uh, I almost said Panda Pops, which I think has, must have been mentioned a few times before. Yeah. Uh, or Calypso squash in the plastic cup with the film that you would pierce at School Fates. Sunkissed, of course. But I haven't gone for any of them. I have gone for Virgin Cola. So another cola. So in the 90s, when Richard Branson wasn't uh, plummeting to the earth in another deflated balloon, uh, as he often did around <laughs> this, this time, uh, he was usually promoting some new Virgin branded products or, or in his, his mega stores, something like that. And this was, yeah, the, the drink of that brand, Virgin Cola. I think it was launched in 94, 95, something like that. And then it did lasted a little bit into the 2000s and then, yeah, disappeared from use. And from what I can remember, it was it was the best Coke. It was up there with Panda Cola in a can, which was really hard to find. They used to sell mm-hmm. that at Springfield Leisure Centre, Panda Cola in a can. But Virgin Cola, I maintain, was the best Coke. So that's kind of why I'm choosing it. I think... Branton is an absolute burke and I don't want to support him in any way, but he did get the coke right. And it was launched in the 90s, didn't continue much longer. So I feel like that's why I've got to choose it. Virgin Coke. It's a very sort of singular thing, isn't it? Uh, Richard Branston branching out into into soft drinks, like when he has record companies and record stores and, and everything else he does. To do that seems quite a departure from everything else, which makes yeah. it even more notable, if you ask me. Yeah, I, d- I don't know what it was all about, but I, I-, I like this stuff. I like this stuff. What can I say? But we have to choose. Well, we should choose between our two options. It's, it's mm-hmm. two colas head to head. What do you think? I think Virgin Cola is definitely the most 90s. Um, it was specifically within that period. As you say, it didn't carry on much longer into the 2000s. And it was a sign of the times. Um, so so my vote has to go with um, with Virgin Cola, I think, uh, with apologies to Mrs. Johnson and her beloved Sainsbury's Classic Cola. Agreed. It's in the ledger. Time now for the main feature of this week's pod and our interview with the acclaimed sports and music writer, Nigel Tassel. Uh, Nigel is very generous with his time while working in Wiltshire last month 
And I'd like to thank him and also Dean, Damo and the team at the Queen's Head in Box for hosting us for the interview. I should also say we're definitely not turning into a football podcast. So obviously last time we spoke about uh, Italia 90, we've had quite a bit of football content recently. This interview does start with a bit of chat about Nigel's new book, Field of Dreams, which is about uh, the history of Wembley Stadium. But we then do go on into a, uh, a regular 90s guest interview. So plenty to look forward to. And I have to say sincerely, this is one of my favourite interviews that we've done on the pod. Nigel was an absolutely brilliant guest and I can't thank him enough for, for taking the time to come and speak to us. You will notice when we when we play in the recording of the interview, Alex, you weren't present, were you? I was not, no. I'd, uh, I'd picked up a, a yellow card for a, for a late and rash comment in my interview <laughs> with, with Ash for the Italian 90 episode last time. So I, as a result, picked up a suspension and I was unable to attend the interview itself. But uh, I knew that Nigel should be in safe hands with, with you on your own. So there you go. But, you know, I, I, I have to do my time. For... Have a word with him. Have a word with him. <laughs> really, really enjoyed this interview. And I hope you guys do too. So here's what happened when I went to the Queen's Head in Box to meet Nigel Tassel. Our guest this time is one of the UK's foremost sports and music writers. He's written for a range of titles, including The Guardian, The Sunday Times and The Independent, and his latest book, Field of Dreams, marks the centenary of Wembley Stadium by examining a football match from each of its hundred years. Now, we'll be talking about the book, of course, but tonight he's here to tell us all about his experiences in the 1990s. It is an honour and a pleasure to welcome to the podcast... Nigel Tassel. Nigel, how are you doing, mate? I'm fine, thank you, Stu. Thanks for asking. No, thank you so much for coming on. It really is an honour to talk to you. It really is. I have to ask how this compares to speaking to Pat Nevin last week on a big stage with a big crowd, and now you're here with me in the in the wonderful Queen's Head here in Box in the, in Wiltshire. But, uh... Uh, there, there were more people in attendance. Yeah, there was, <laughs> it was it was standing room only. It's the first time I've ever hosted as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done lecturing in the past, um, but I had no nerves at all. It's really weird. It was the I get nerves sometimes, depending on who I'm speaking to, even if I'm just doing a phone interview. Um, but yeah, we we came out we came out to uh, to the others. Um, this is the day, and obviously everyone's looking at Pat. So so I I just knew the emphasis was on him. So mm-hmm. and and Pat is a great talker and and an interviewer's dream. You just ask a question. Excellent. Five minutes later, he's gone off in several different directions. <laughs> it's just a case of reining him back in. But, um, yeah, great fun. Really good fun. Excellent, excellent. Well, I'm sure you're extremely nervous tonight talking to me then because this is <laughs> going to be a, this is going to be a real test, I'm sure. <laughs> so, Nigel, as we've said, you've written books and articles on a number of, of cultural subjects. Uh, and for your last book, Whatever Happened to the C86 Kids, um, you tracked down members of every band that featured on that famous mid-'80s compilation tape from The Enemy. Um, so firstly, what, what I wanted to ask was, what inspired you to embark on the project of marking 100 years of, of Wembley Stadium through the prism of 100 different matches from the stadium's history? Well, like any good journalist slash author, you always keep an eye on the, the calendar. Mm-hmm. And so you, you, what anniversaries are coming up, because those are the things that get commissioned. Editors, be they magazine editors or book editors, they love an anniversary. They love something to really tag it on. They've got a really good mm-hmm. sales thing on. So I seem to, I noticed... It was probably about, I don't know, 18 months ago, probably. And I just thought, okay, well, and you do it. You do, oh, what happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 25 years ago? I'd never really gone far back as 100 years. I'm going, oh, but hold on. It's not going to be about something that's 100 years old. We've got that vast, vast array of matches. that, um, And I wanted to do it sort of across sports because so many different sports have happened at Wembley. But I've learned from bitter experience, you can't really do a pan-sport book because... 
mainly the, the bookshop doesn't know where to put it. Mm-hmm. So you are in all sports, which is the top left, farthest <laughs> corner that no one can reach in a bookshop. So it's all, it is all about football, but I do also talk about Evil Knievel mm-hmm. and talk about the greyhounds there and the speedway. You know, I, I allow those to get into it. Um, and I just thought, well, I don't want to do a straight history. And it, it, they've got a, they're 100 bite-sized chapters. So yeah. we're, we're talking sort of 800 words per thing, per, per entry. And, and I didn't also want to say... Tell people what they already knew. I'm not just reheating old facts. Yeah. Oh, here we go, 1966. Yeah, we all know <laughs> it. So I want the reader every time to go, well, I didn't know that, as they get to the final sentence, 100 times over, mm-hmm. ideally. So I kind of take come at it kind of left field. So some, And there's lots of interviews in there. Pat Nevin is indeed interviewed in there, to keep that, um, about the uh, 1986 Full Members Cup. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, the 1956 Cup Final, Obviously, none of the players are still with us or anyone like that. However, well, who's the youngest ones in the stadium? Well, the ball boys. Yeah. So I tracked down one of the ball boys from that final. who's now in his 80s. And he was the guy closest to Bert Troutman when, when his neck got broken. And he's just, apart from the row of photographers right by the goalpost. And he said, yeah, I heard the crack. Oh, so, wow. you know, it's whatever, 70 <laughs> odd years, yeah. best part of 70 years on. He still remembers that, you know, he can still actually hear that in his brain. Mm-hmm. So finding all those stories, and, and it's stories of fans, players, whoever, you know, ball boys, trying to tell this rich story. And and also not just high-level uh, batches, you know, so you have non-league games, schoolboy internationals, because those are as much a part of Wembley's history as as the big, you know, Euro 96, World yeah. Cups, etc. Absolutely brilliant. Well, I mean, Alex and I can attest to the fact that it is a superb book and we've been uh, we've been reading it ever since it came out, obviously. Um, and we're particularly obsessed with the 1990s chapter. Um, so if you had to pick one of those matches you, you've researched and written about as your favourite from the 1990s section, um, which one do you think you would pick? I, the one I'm, well, there's, Euro 96 is an obvious one and, and of those, not necessarily the England-Scotland game, but the England-Netherlands game, because I've never had that with the England team, being a fan of the England team for 20 years at that point, since I was a kid. Hold on, it's 3-0, three, three it's 4-0. No, this is not happening, this is not really. But the one I probably remember most is the 1990 Cup final, Palace against mm-hmm. Man United, because we'd already had two amazing semi-finals. You'd had Palace-Liverpool, Man United-Oldham, which were all you know, multiple yep. goals, real thrillers. And you thought, well, the cup final couldn't live on to this. It was also, I just, I was at university, so I was in my shared house at university, and I just stopped being entertainments officer. So I was back to being a normal student for once. Saturdays meant two o'clock on Saturday, three o'clock on a Saturday, was walking, because we had a band on that night. So you got off to do the loading yeah. and, and all that for the next 12 hours, your, your fate is determined. So I was back to being a student, so we had loads of people around, all watched it, and then like kids afterwards, we went out on this patch of grass behind the house and just reenacted it. We were like, like we were seven or eight or nine years old. We weren't. We were twenty twenty one, but it was just such a great game. We just felt, mm. yeah, we want to kind of, you know, who's going to be Ian Wright? I'll be, I'll be Ian Wright. I'll score these two goals. Um, so yes, that that game in particular was was, and so with that chapter, I focus on. It's a famous clip on YouTube from a from a documentary that Ian made for the BBC, where his old teacher suddenly yes, surprises yeah. him. You know. Yeah. It's, it's one of the most magical pieces of television I've ever seen. So I focus on, on his old teacher and Brilliant. back home and in his house and just paying extra attention because <laughs> his, his former charge, you know, his little tearaway Ian Wright, is there making, coming off the bench and making history and really kick-starting his career because he just flew. After, after that, I came, coming back from a broken leg, 
two goals in the FA Cup final, and then you know and what he did at Arsenal ever since. Yeah, he wasn't fit enough to start the the, the first final, was he? He wasn't. No, he came off the bench, bench and, yeah. and you know I think Motson says you know well, well let's see what he can do, and then <laughs> within minutes he'd equalised. Then he put them ahead, and then you know to just mm-hmm. yeah equalised towards the end. But uh, fantastic, fantastic game. Brilliant. Well, for me, um, it has to be Leicester three, Swindon four, um, <gasps> the, the playoff final from yeah. nineteen ninety three. Partly for the lo- local connection, but also because it features heavily, and we've spoken about this VHS many times on the podcast, on uh, Danny Baker's fabulous World of Freak football, oh, wow. uh, which was a VHS which I had uh, growing up. And that match, because it was so topsy-turvy and, and so swinging from one end to another with, with great goals and incident and penalties and, and everything else like that, that match sticks in my mind. So um, no, I used to love those Danny Baker videos. Danny mm-hmm. Baker's right hammerings I yeah. had, yeah. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Just... You know, the humiliation of losing 8-0 isn't enough, and then you've got Danny turning up, you know, just, just, just to turn, turn the knife a little bit more. So you've mentioned that you've, uh, you've interviewed um, Pat for the book, as well as, uh, as well as speaking to him last week. You've also spoken to people like Dion Dublin, who's our official 90s footballer of the podcast, although he probably doesn't know that. <laughs> Barry Davis, Jill Scott, etc. But I have, I wouldn't say I've met him, but I have shared the same ground as one of your non-league. Okay. It's one of your non-league interviewees, which I just wanted to mention, a chap called Tony Banker. Oh yeah, um, yeah, who played for Dawlish Town Sports and Social Club in the Carlsberg Pub Cup final in 1996. Um, so when I was uh, involved with Caution Town, um, my local team, we had an away FA Vars game at Newton Abbott where he was manager. Okay. Um, so yeah, I remember remember Tony Banker from then, and he's uh, he was an imposing and um, a big character on the touchline. There were a lot of those. There are a lot of those in non-league football, aren't there? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 No, no. I think he scored. I think it was that he scored the day after the actual FA Cup final. That's right. Cantona yeah. mm-hmm. had scored at the same end that he had, and so you know. And it was his birthday as and well. It was his birthday <laughs> as well. Yeah, yeah. So you know, really special day that he's mm-hmm. never going to forget. Exactly. Absolutely. Can't get any better. And probably remembers it more than his encounter with you, Stuart. I do, you know. Maybe. I don't want to be rude, but you know, <laughs> quite possibly. And now it's recorded for posterity in your book, of course. Oh, so well, yeah. Can't get any better. Let's get on to the uh, the main body of, of the uh, of the pod, which is all about the 1990s, of course. Um, so, we like to start by asking our guests where they were in their in their lives at different points throughout the decade. Yep. Um, so, first of all, if I could ask, where were you in 1990? And I think you might have already I've sort of partly yeah, covered yeah. this with the uh, with the FA Cup final. So, I was in my second year at university uh, in Colchester, and yes, as I say, completely sidelining my studies in return for being the entertainment officer. So we were putting on bands, the likes of The Fall and House of Love, De La Soul. We had Lush supporting House of Love for 50 quid, which I, I know Mickey Brain, you work really well now these days. And uh, yes, she said that's more than they normally got paid. Um, which was, a you know, amazing. You know, I was this spotty, shy urchin who'd gone to university. And then suddenly I'd like, put myself forward to be elected and you do hustings and you've got the campus voting mm-hmm. for you. And, and then you're kind of, you know, I was fortunate I had a permanent ENTS manager as well, so it wasn't just me with this budget, yep. ultimate responsibility left with him. But it was great fun, you know, really good. For, so I did that for a year, and as I say, just finished in the spring of 1990. But my degree was United States Studies, so after then, having had about a month of being a normal student, I then went to study in America for a year. Okay. So I went from Colchester back home to Sussex, Worked it worked two jobs just during that summer to kind of get some money, and then yeah, went off to Minneapolis to travel a lot. Yes, again, wow. the, the studies <laughs> were quite sidelined there. Um, it didn't count towards my degree. I just had to pass the. Is the days when, mm-hmm. you know, your fees were paid, so you had an exchange, yeah, reciprocal agreement between universities. So one of their students came over to you, 
and I've just did 20,000 miles around the, the train network in America and but also passing the year fine mm-hmm. you know it was all good you know it's good prep for my final year um, I did my kind of final year project research while I was out there but yeah so quite a quite a quite a different year you know mm-hmm. you know the first time leaving home or leaving leaving these shores at least yeah. and going to live in a different country sort of on my side absolutely fantastic and um your first book covers your your time as an it does as an yeah. entertainment yeah. Yeah. university guy doesn't it yeah. that's right yeah. no so yeah mr gig which was my first book 10 years ago now it was kind of an exploration of what live music means now because when i was 16 17 it was this little subculture that my parents didn't understand and you go to a room just like this, like we're in now, with a drum kit set up on the stage behind you. And it was, it was, it was a little subculture. And then I then moved to the country. Well, I, you know, and always been around music. My first job out of university was as a roadie, um, and I've, I've been a music journalist, so live reviews. You know, always been around live music. And then I kind of moved to the country. And then kids came along, and then suddenly you turn around, and the record industry has imploded. So the life. Yeah, live is where where all the bands make their money. So suddenly, you know, you have three generations of the same family going to you know a Normadone gig, and you go, how did that happen? That was my thing, and now, you know. <laughs> so grandkids' parents and grandparents all going to the same concert. So I, I did a little kind of round Britain search of uh, in search of what live music means now. So that included a trip back to Essex where we put on all those bands every week religiously. They had one band on the whole term. And they'd opened a cocktail bar. It was a done really dingy. It used to be an underground car park, really dingy venue. Anyone knows it? Cult Essex University. And then, yeah, there's a neon cocktail sign in the corner. <laughs> so it was the most unlikely um, location for a mm-hmm. cocktail bar. Let alone, why do students need a cocktail bar? No, we're here to. It's, it's snake back, white and black, and it's throwing pints in the air and, you know, <laughs> 78 pence pints of Cronenberg. That's what it was in my day. But yeah, suddenly they're buying, uh, you know. And posh cocktails and everything. So yes, yeah, so that was me in 1990. So yeah, so partly here, a little bit home, and then and then off to the the land of the free. Superb. So if we move forward a, a few years then and go to the middle of the decade, um, where do we find you in in 1995? So by 1995, we had we'd moved to Bristol by then. I was at university with 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 my partner, and so temporarily moved to Swansea, where she came from. Then went to Bristol. I was. Ninety-five. I was I'd just finished working in the second-hand bookshop mm-hmm. um, on Cheltenham Road in Bristol, which made redundant with a week before the two years was up. So I had no rights to any kind of statutory oh. pay, and I was absolutely completely deliberately done. But but the owner who'd done that, he'd also given me some really good bit of advice. The only bit of good advice he gave me was that to buy a house when we were young. You know, mm. I was on eight grand a year. James was on not much more. But, you know, people younger than me listening to this are going to hate this, but on that much, you could buy a house. And a nice mm-hmm. two-bedroom Victorian terrace in Bristol, all original features, you know, for like 43,000 quid. So it was an mm-hmm. eight grand, and you're able to do it. And that's, that's the best advice I've ever had in my life, was, mm-hmm. was to get on with that. So by 95, made redundant, and I just went into an office job then. Just, to, you know, I had a mortgage to pay, you know. Um, I go to a lot of gigs, you know, Bristol's... All, all the goose venues, the Thecla, the Louisiana, mm-hmm. the Fleece, Anson Rooms, whatever, all on the doorstep. And I was trying to get in with Venue Magazine there, obviously the, the late Bristol on Bath, What's On Guide, without success at that point, um, although the story does change soon. And yeah, just, just kind of living the life, oh, I've got a dog now and I've got a house and just being kind of grown up, you know, mm-hmm. and going to do a big shop and all stuff like that. <laughs> and But I, yeah, it's, it's, you know, and this, this took care of my, sort of my 20s doing that. 
when I should have been doing the really good stuff. But I kind yeah. of, hopefully, I made up for it. But um, but yes, it was a bit of a no. It's not a slump at all. It's just like a little side thing. And then before getting kind of back onto yeah. what I wanted to do in life, you know, professionally. Okay, so. If we then jump forward to the end of the decade in 1999, do we then find you with a with a writing job and, and you're on that on that trail? You do, yeah. By 1997, Venue um, Magazine used to have three music editors. One would be was a permanent member of staff mm-hmm. who looked over after the rock and pop listings as well as features and everything. And then there were two freelancers, one who did kind of folk and country stuff, and the other one was jazz and world music. Um, and they advertised for a jazz and world music guy, and I knew nothing about jazz cared for it even less <laughs> but I really I was really into world music really into mm-hmm. a lot of African a lot of Latin stuff so I thought well I can blag the jazz and just to do this stuff this will be good and the world music stuff took about 5% of the job <laughs> and it wasn't a job you know it was 20 hours a fortnight right so I was still doing the regular day job but you get to gigs and you'd be doing lists I'll be typing up trad jazz listing going this wasn't what I expected it was <laughs> going to be but from that the editor knew or the group editor knew that I wanted to to have a job at the, at the company and one day I went in at lunchtime handed over my three and a half inch floppy disk for him to take my listings mm-hmm. off hand it back this is pre-email <laughs> so you know emails and attachments I literally would go across town in my lunch break hand it over they'd take the file hand it back and I'd walk all the way back um, and uh, and he just showed me an advert and he said Ben you're looking for an editor and I was like oh, okay alright Johnny's leaving is he okay alright and then I went back to work and I was just sitting there laughing a reason he showed me that. Mm. So I, I phoned him out and said, is there a reason you showed me that advert? And he goes, well, wouldn't do you any harm. I thought, okay. So I applied for it. So my very, and I got it, and my very first job in publishing, you know, most people rise up from editorial assistant to, you know, staff writer, section editor, you know, there's a clear hierarchy. Venue was unlike any other magazines. It was right. a real cottage industry, real one-off thing. And I was made editor, with, having never worked in magazines, never done a proper day in magazines, just me <laughs> at home in the spare room typing up some jazz listings. Um, so, yeah, so in the autumn of 99, I was having the absolute baptism of fire being the editor of a fortnightly magazine, but a really word-heavy fortnightly magazine. Yes, yeah. chock full of listings and features, you know, so it was 128 pages or whatever, plus the supplements that we used to do, eating out supplements, student guides and everything. Mm-hmm. So that was a real baptism of fire, which I did for three and a half years. And at that point, I kind of, one, I didn't know I didn't want to do it, because it's very cyclical, you know. Yeah. Oh, it's it's September, here's the student guide, you know. And I knew I wanted to do more, but also knew, well, nothing's going to be harder than this. By that stage, it had gone weekly as well. So I was doing 51 issues a year with like two and a half members of editorial staff, you know. It yeah. was real bare bones. I was working Saturdays and Sundays. I'd be taking all the proofreading home. It was a seven-day week, you know, God. Well, I proved to myself I can do this. Let's 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 move mm-hmm. on. Um, but yes, in 1999, I was I was having the baptism of I was feeling <laughs> feeling the flames at yeah. the fiercest at that point. But it but, certainly sounds like it. Yes, but but amazing, amazing place to kind of go and learn your trade mm-hmm. and learn how to put a feature together, or you're going to press and you still haven't got that interview with Horace Andy or whatever, and you're trying to track him down, and the cover has already gone to the printers with exclusive interview with Horace <laughs> Andy on the cover. And then you eventually track him down to a, a campsite in France. Um, and he says, oh, the sun's shining. I'm in my shorts. And that is the answer to every question you ask him. He's going, oh, I don't care, man. The sun's shining. I'm in my shorts. <laughs> so then you quickly have to write this story of how I tried to get hold of Horace mm. Andy on press day. So you just twist it. Um, so lots of stories like that, real flying by the seat of your pants. Lots of working right through the night, 
getting the magazine to go to press at sort of five in the morning and you come out of the office and the milk floats going down the road and you're just going, well, wow. these will be good stories at some point, but yeah. I don't, while I'm in them, they're not so great, <laughs> you know, having just done a 23-hour day or something ridiculous. But, um, yeah, real amazing Amazing learning ground, absolutely. I bet you were thinking, in 23 years' time, a guy's going to ask me to come on a podcast, and this will be well, a great story. Well, the, the, the word podcast, you wouldn't know. I'd have what the hell is that? You know, so, you know, we were, as I say, barely on email, barely on internet. You know, it was real real cut and paste, proper kind of old school right. stuff, because we weren't in other mm-hmm. magazine, you know, proper national magazines would have would have been up and flying, but we yeah. were we were still a little bit old fashioned. We, no, we did have we had Steve Merchant was a work experience student with us, oh, so cool. that's that's the that's the thing. So uh, yes, he went on to bacon bread and stuff at least. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, let's have a chat about some of the more sort of tangible aspects of, of the decade, if okay. you like. So so a few of the the sort of cultural touch points, um, and one of the things that we we like to talk about on the podcast specifically is um, is cars. Uh, okay. Cars from the decade. So, do you have uh, a favourite car that either you owned or family member had, or, or anything like that that, that uh, springs to mind? I was I was a late learner driver, so I didn't mm-hmm. learn until mid in my mid twenties when I was in Bristol. Right. That was the other. Yeah, to be fair to him, that was the other thing that the bookshop owner did for me. Not only told me to buy a house, he also paid for driving lessons because he was going right. to get a van and mm-hmm. we were gonna, we were going to start delivering books to schools and stuff like that. But he did pay for my driving lessons, so that was, that was quite. Sounds good. like a great guy, yeah. So yeah, so that, 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 so that was fine. So I and but then I didn't have a car because we were living in you know I was I was living in Windmill Hill, Bristol, so pretty central. Mm-hmm. Walking to work or get the bus, you know, no need for a car. Um, I remember we had a Kia Pride, a cherry red Kia Pride. When I first I remember going out for my first um, first ride solo drive down the down the A thirty eight to Barry Gurney and back. It was exciting. Um, and it wasn't until we moved to the country. We moved to the country in early 99, so before I, I started at Venue, mm-hmm. um, in which case we needed you know, another car. So it, my first car was a black Saab, Saab 900 Turbo. Oh, superb. It was not a bad first one, but Absolutely. it was a terrible car in the end and just you know, really not good. But in terms of, you know, you know, nice alloy wheels and everything. And mm-hmm. I don't know what the name is, so I turn up in the country and it's this, you know, city kid turning up in this... But yeah, so that's not a bad first car. But um, since then, I've gone the much more practical and slightly newer. Okay. Know, it was it was quite old then, and I know nothing about cars. Well, um, if, if Alex was here, he'd be absolutely drooling over that Saab. I can assure oh, you now. That, that's yeah, definitely yeah, his yeah. ballpark, and he'd be he'd be well into that. Yes, yeah, so it was. It was. It was. It was it drank the petrol though. <laughs> really did. You know, it wasn't. A, you know, I was driving into the city by then to do the mm-hmm. go to venue, and so he'd be driving across the city to get to. Up to St Andrew's North Venue, and it would just be you just oh. you just watching the petrol, <laughs> the, 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 the petrol meter going down and down. So it wouldn't do. It wasn't great on that. And then the turbo went, I think, and so he started not being able to go up hills. Which when you live right. in the Mendips, you know, not ideal. Not ideal. You know, you go, everyone's going. Why is that Saab going twenty five miles up up, <laughs> up that hill? So yes, yeah, so we went more practical then, and then kids came along, mm-hmm. and so you know. You, you don't you don't have a Saab nine hundred turbo if you've got no you know, push chairs <laughs> and various child seats and stuff like that. But yeah, so that was that was my first car. Brilliant, brilliant. So for a man of your stature and calibre, um, <laughs> this this might be a difficult question to answer, and it normally is the most difficult question for our guests to answer. But I have to ask you about your favourite musical act or album from the decade, and uh, 
you know, you can choose you can choose a few if you like, if there are a few you'd like to mention. Well, um, album I can totally tell you because it's the only answer and it's uh, Corner Shops When I Was Born for the Seventh Time. Brilliant. Amazing album. Sleep on the left side, leave the right side free. Really mysterious, really strange, really esoteric, and th- you know, and you think it wouldn't hang together because it's it's all over the place, mm-hmm. but it's all over the place in an amazing way. And and I once pitched, you know, those thirty-three and a third series of books, little small music yeah, yeah, books, yeah. All, all, all put each one on a different album. And I pitched to do it once, and thankfully I got turned down because. I don't want to know what it all means. I don't know what it means, and I don't want to dissect it because mm-hmm. the enjoyment for me is, and it's an amazing one. But if you're travelling, it just feels, oh, I just love it so much. And everyone thinks of them as a one-hit wonder, which is just absolute garbage, mm. you know. And oh, I just, I just love that album and and the cover itself, um, not the American cover, but the the British cover. It's all greens and golds and reds. Yeah. Quite a weird image in there as well. And that you know you can't judge a book by the cover or an album by its cover. You you kind of can. Because that looks how it sounds, yeah. and it's really, Agreed. really full of mystery, and I love it. And I haven't played for a long time, and I am going to go home and put it in the car for tomorrow, um, because it's just such a great album. And you come back to it. It's really weird in places, you know, really kind of weird noises, the ambient, and and the, you know, the song you go. This is made by the same band that just did the last song, but it's just <laughs> a fantastic album. I love it. I love it. I love it. And my opinion hasn't changed in mm-hmm. over twenty-five years. Musical act, though, I'm going to go with. Just because we, we used to, before we had kids, we used to follow them around like love sick puppies. Um, Gorky's Zygotic Monkey. Oh, you know, the, the, the greatest musical export of West Wales ever. Mm-hmm. And we would just, we would follow them around <laughs> from Tembe to, I remember being at Southbank, uh, the Royal Festival Hall on the night mm-hmm. that England played Argentina in the World Cup 98. Wow. <laughs> we were driving up and it was John Peel's Meltdown. They were playing, in fact, they were supporting Corner Shop. Mm-hmm. And so we listened to the listening to the commentary all the way up on the M4 anyway, going, what, this is mad. <laughs> it's like five minutes gone and not so much has happened. You know, it's an mm. extraordinary game. And then obviously went to penalties, but they held off the gig. When Peel, I Peel had obviously okay, yeah. said, no, you know, no, no one's going on stage while this is happening. <laughs> so we, we watched the penalty shootout with them, with the band. And so that was really nice. And we kind of, we kind of got to know them by sight mm-hmm. and everything. Um, and in the end, we asked A. Ross Charles, the singer and pianist, to actually play at our wedding because we got married in Pembrokeshire. Uh, he turned it down because he's painfully shy. Oh, well, you're on your trade on stage every night. Yeah. I don't think you can be <laughs> that shy. But lovely, they sent a lovely wedding gift of like loads of bootlegs from the sort of the, the mixing desk, oh, like t-shirts, yeah. really rarities. Lovely, lovely people. So um, we yeah we used to follow them around all over the place. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that 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 to me is kind of the late nineties. Uh, you know, everyone's kind of. It, a lot of people, I guess, say Britpop, for, but for us, it was you know James from Swansea anyway. So we kind of leant towards the Welsh lot, and uh, yeah, Gorky's were the best. Oh, for yeah. me, that's the best answer we've ever had to that question. We've, we've certainly never had a guest being bought a wedding gift by their favourite musical actor. <laughs> that's 90, pretty so good. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no we'll, we'll go with that. Yeah, <laughs> can't be bad. Can't be bad. So if we move on then to to movies, we are you much of a movie goer? I was before kids. We used mm-hmm. to go a lot. Again, Bristol. So you know, you go to. Uh, to Cineworld, World, well, no, it wasn't Cineworld World then, what's it called? Um, the one out on Avon Meads, mm-hmm. um, which was the biggest, first kind of multiplex we went to. Go, wow, this is good. And normally there would be at least one. But there's a lot of good crime 
movies in the 90s and mid 90s yeah. like mm-hmm. things to do in Denver when you're dead and that all the stuff of that ilk or we go to the watershed as well for kind of artier stuff so we went, did go to a lot of movies then but again there was only one correct answer and whatever anyone else tells you on this pod Stuart they're talking nonsense because obviously <laughs> it's 1996 and it's Fargo mm-hmm. it's just the greatest film ever I mean we saw it we happened to be we were we were in the States of the week it came the day it came out so we were in the first screening in New Orleans to, to go and see it baking hot day it's like no let's go and immerse ourselves in the cold icy mm-hmm. tundra of Minnesota because I used to live in Minnesota it had kind of real resonance yep. for me as well And but again just like the Corner Shop album in all the years that have gone by since nothing has been able to knock it off it's pedestal and I ended up writing a book on it because obviously that's what I do <laughs> you use everything don't you so I, I wrote a book that's the only book that uh, that my sons have read of mine in fact from cover to cover um, and because they're absolute film butts as well what a great film amazing dialogue just and just the right blend of you know really horrific violence <laughs> versus great funny stuff you know some really good set pieces as well so mm-hmm. yeah Fargo Fargo all the way absolutely brilliant one of my wife's favourites as well so you're, you're in good company there, we go. there. Absolutely. I'm so, so glad I'm giving you all the right answers <laughs> so if we change tack again then to, um, to to sort of computer and video games right and this is a, a sort of borderline subject for, for our guests it really is yeah. either you were really into it or you weren't at all um, I so, wasn't really into it, let's mm-hmm. say that, but I was just a slight bit. At university, I was addicted to playing OutRun. Okay. Uh, so I always just preferred driving games. Yeah. Never a fan of single-person shoot-em-ups. Unlike my entire family that seems to spend their evenings doing that, including my <laughs> wife, very bloodthirsty for an hour or two every night. Um, but I don't, I don't game at all now. Um, I do, but the only game I do have is a rally game, but I just haven't played that for so okay. long. Um, used to love OutRun even went to the Space Needle in Seattle, and rather than looking at the view from this incredible thing, you know, it's on the, in the, on the opening credits of Frasier, yes, you know, of course, that full yeah, tower. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And rather than looking at the view, oh, I've got an outrun machine, so I put my, <laughs> I put, I put, I put my quarters into that. Um, but in the 90s, I did have a Sega Mega Drive. So there are, you know, real sort of basic games. Uh, Columns, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tetris, uh, mm-hmm. by any other name. Uh, <laughs> Lemmings, used to be quite a fan of Lemmings. I wasn't a fan of... The poor lemon come <laughs> falling off a cliff, but that was quite quite good. Um, and then uh, micro machines again, right? Yeah, those, yeah. those little machines on the desktop, and then you know they're going over. So I used to quite enjoy that as well. So, and then since then, I, I played kind of Super Mario. So it's, it's again, it's all drives up. Mm-hmm. And the Super Mario, I just like the driving aspect of. I don't like the leaving ink spots for the cars behind to slide on yeah, or yeah, yeah. throwing objects and stuff. Take a look. I just want. I just want the bare. You know, I'm a sports enthusiast. Aha! Aha! I just want the bare thing of victory or defeat. You know, and and trying to improve on what I did the previous night. Brilliant. Well, you certainly get that with Outrun. That's for sure. That's, oh, uh, that's yeah. One of the one of the greatest driving games. I would. Uh, the, the, I, the music is in my head right now as I'm talking, <laughs> and the bit where you complete because it's got five levels and you complete. And the car drives itself, and the steering wheel moves. And if you're there in a student union bar, and you're standing about, you're swigging on your bottle of Newcastle Brown, going, "Yep, I did it again." Yep. Um, yes. No, I love massive loved kudos. It. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. On the shoot 'em ups, um, I should probably mention one of our former guests, um, the blues guitarist Innis Sybin, 
um, once put a tour in doubt by playing Quake for about three days straight. Oh, really? Um, yeah, and he sort of got a tennis elbow and RSI and, and things like that, <laughs> and um, yeah, put his um, put his tour in doubt. I've, I've, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't have any any kind of desires to kind of do that <laughs> that sort of stuff. I have to say, you know, I've got a little snooker table, a little six by three snooker table in the conservatory. So while the others are waiting their turn on the mm-hmm. on the PlayStation, I'm just out there. I'm just I'm, I'm an analog guy. What can I say? Go. I'm an old man. <laughs> And it was a fourteen break last week. A fourteen break, yeah. So I joked about it was one four seven, which you seem to you seem to. <laughs> I, I took literally, yeah, yeah. I apologise for that. <laughs> no, uh, yes, no. It's, it's it's a it's a table that kind of slopes off in every single direction. I see. And I've still not mastered which directions or which pockets. <laughs> but uh, you know, that's 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 the thing. You know, at the end of a stressful day, then you know, just knock some balls about on there. Wonderful, takes it out of you. Yeah, absolutely. If we move on to television. Do you have a do you have a standout television series of the nineties? Um. What I, um, I think of in the 90s, it was an absolute golden age for TV comedy. Mm-hmm. You know, around that time, people were always oh, the death of sitcom, and you're nothing like it was in the 70s or, or the early 80s. But TV comedy, you know, everyone whose household name was kind of. So, obviously, Father Ted, The Day to Day, fantastic. Yep. Larry Sanders, Seinfeld, uh, Big Train, which has just been re- um, yeah. repeated yeah. On, on BBC Two again. Which is good. However, you know, 1997, we're just talking, you know, it's an absolute classic. We quote from it every day, with regardless, you know, of, of not doing so deliberately. It's our man and partridge. You know, mm-hmm. the, that is, I think, yes, it's probably the single, you know, I think it beats 40 hours. I think it's just there. It's, it's perfect. You, I, I've watched it so many times. I can quote, I know exactly what's coming. But it's just every mm-hmm. time, it's just an absolute masterclass. <laughs> Comic writing. In and just, just you know, the pettiness of the man, um, which you can actually identify with. This is the thing; he's like that, but you still he still has your sympathy at the end mm-hmm. of the day because they're a bit in there. You go, well, he is actually kind of right in that situation, you know. But yes, it still stands up. You know, my kids have watched it, and my kids can quote from it. Mm-hmm. It just hasn't lost it at all for me. I'm Anna Parch, nine oh seven. Probably yes. We'll say it now: the greatest comedy series ever made. I don't think that's, there's going to be an argument here. I mean, absolutely. Um, you know, as you say, eminently quotable, tungsten tip screws, back of the net, Jurassic Park, <laughs> the list goes on. Um, but but the, the, and the thing is, all the formats that he's, he's presented, Partridge in since, none of them have been absolute massive disasters. They've all mm-hmm. pretty much hit the mark. You know, the yeah. film is great, you know, and, and the, the podcast and the radio stuff. And each, each time he says, right, we're going to put him into this one. So in, into into yep. the kind of you know um, the half hour live TV show which is, was fantastically done um, this time, that still works as well because yep. it's just different you know and it's just enough of a twist. But Alan's still Alan mm-hmm. at the end of the day you know, <laughs> and we don't want him to be anything else. Uh, Sophie, Mr. Partridge. As you know, at the end of the week, I'm I'm meeting Tony Hayes at the BBC, and he he is Mr. Numero One. And uh, the, the problem is, I've, I've got some rude daubings on the side of my car. Can you still drive the car? Well, yeah, yeah, obviously. I mean, that's... Do you know what it says on the side of my car? Tosser. You're in the right ballpark. It, 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 no, it, it, um, it actually says, uh, cock, piss, partridge. <laughs> Mr. Partridge um, has got has got some rude graffiti. 
Graffiti? Well, in the hotel? No, no, God, there's, there's never any graffiti in the hotel. Although, in the gents a couple of weeks ago, I did see someone had drawn a, a lady's part. Mm. <laughs> it's quite detailed. Mm. Well, the guy obviously had talent. That's the OK, so we're, we're sort of approaching, approaching the end of my interrogation of you here. Right. Um, but we'll go, for a, we'll go for a wild card, so if there's something not covered elsewhere in, in, the, in the questions already that you'd like to mention from, from your 90s, um, what, um, what would you like to bring up? I mean, I, was, you know, I, I grew up listening to Radio 1, sort of nighttime Radio 1, in the 80s. But in the 80s, I had a paper round, so mm. I never really listened to John Peel. So it would be right. much more the early evening stuff, Janice Long and, and the like that. But in the 90s, Radio 1's nighttime output was really strong as well. Peel was still there, Andy Kershaw was still doing stuff. Um, Mark Radcliffe came along, mm. you know, really wonderful esoteric late night show. And then also Chris Morris. And Chris, I used to love Chris Morris's, yeah. you know, man who was on ra um, Radio Bristol for years, mm -hmm. who allegedly got the sack because he filled the newsroom with helium just as he <laughs> handed over on the hour to, uh, to, to the newsreader. Um, Big fan of the day-to-day. -day. and then, But also, you, you kind of get a sense of who Chris Morris was for his radio show a little bit. He's still playing a part, mm. but at least you understood. And he's playing great music at the time, you know. He played a lot of Beck, a lot of auteurs. Some really good stuff, not the obvious stuff. But also, still doing all those pranks, you know, lots of prank calls. One of my favourite things was when he had, a, he had a guy who would just be in a shop, asking, live on his phone, and just <laughs> asking ridiculous things, you know, saying... Be handy to change. Oh, no, I can't take that when it's upside down. You know that coin's upside down. Or have you got some bread? Yeah, I've got some bread. Right. Ask him what the turning circle on the loaf is. You know all these ridiculous <laughs> setups. And then what's happening now? He's chasing me out of the shop now. It was just like really good. It's got a bit of beetle, but a bit of kind of yeah. Mm -hmm. Beetle meets Steve Lamac, and you kind of in between. You kind of have this really good show. So yeah, late night radio. And that's in the that's probably the time I started listening to radio fours. I was listening to a lot more radio mm -hmm. in those days. Possibly you know doing a commute in the car and stuff. But yeah, Chris Morris's show was really good. I'm, I'm sure on the internet, you know, people have uploaded, I really sincerely hope they have uploaded them, because they were, they were just really good. Yeah, mm -hmm. really very good. Our final two questions, uh, they're thinkers. I'll, um, okay. I'll, I'll put it that way. So first of all, um, how do you think the 1990s shaped the person that you are today? I would say they were good because they gave me the boot I needed. You know, because I, I, I stopped working in that bookshop and I was just doing a, you know, quite an anonymous office job. Mm -hmm. Ideas of what I wanted to do, but no idea how to do them. It gave me, and so, so I, you know, I went for this job as the jazz correspondent for Venue Magazine. It's just like, well, that's ridiculous. It's like, oh, just do it. What's the worst they can do? They say no. And this is, you know, I've, I've, I've taught journalism students since. And I said, what's the worst that can happen? They don't respond. You know, if you mm -hmm. ask someone for an interview, they don't respond. Or they might say yeah, or yeah. they say no, or they might say yes. Mm. You know, and I had that with one of my one of my you know sort of undergraduates, first year undergraduates. Going, oh, I've emailed Jamie Carragher. I found an email. I've approached him, and he said he's up for interview. I said, there you go. Mm. What's the harm in asking? You know, and I've always I've always said, what's the worst? What's the worst can happen? I'm not going to kill you. No one's going to shoot you. It's fine. <laughs> you know. So I think getting into venue and suddenly going, oh come, right, I can do this. This isn't just a newspaper, a magazine that's on the newsstand. I'm suddenly in. Right, let's push that foot in the door, wedge that open. Um, and so I, I started at Venue, I was already 30 by the time I started at Venue, so those 20s, I did a four-year degree, I started university a year late, so I didn't graduate until I was 23, mm -hmm. then I had a bit of time on the dole, then we moved to Bristol, suddenly I'm, a, I'm in my late 20s, it's like, okay, time's running out, 30 was ancient, <laughs> 10 years ago it felt to me, and now I'm actually there. 
So it's a case of, right, do it. Just go ahead and do mm-hmm. it. And you've got to, and also learning. You've got to make your own destiny. There's me thinking, oh, well, I was an entertainment officer. Loads of record companies will want to employ me. That's what I wanted to do. I want to go in the record business. And we didn't know they didn't. You know, we didn't know they weren't. They didn't know I existed. And I seemed to think they would just beat a part of my door. So I think, yeah, that was the 80s is where I grew up, but 90s is where I kind of, you know, got a proper sense of the world, you know, having come out of academia and just learning what was, how I had to make my own destiny, that it wasn't, because everything, school and university, it was all laid out, here's, here's, the, here's the lesson you go to, here's your exam, here's this yeah. and that, and suddenly it's like, no, okay, you're in charge of it now, and it's up to you, you know, it's like being Tim from the office, you know. I was in danger of that that situation. He was he was approaching thirty, wasn't he? And just mm. go quoting John Lennon about you know you know when you're busy, life is what happens when you're busy making plans. And so it's kind of that moment, and I go, well, you've got to kind of do it. So yeah, yeah it gave me the kick on the backside, basically the nineties, and and it felt at the time, you know, you could do these things. It felt quite open, you know, and the internet was just emerging, so there were a lot of kind of. You know, there yeah. were there were a lot of possibilities, and yeah, it's just a case of grasping them, isn't it? Mm. You, can, you can do the easy thing and just oh, would be nice, but I'm not going to bother. Mm-hmm. Or you actually do it, and and those things then mushroom, and suddenly you you're sat in a room in box. Just to use <laughs> to, <isn't it? laughs> there we go, there we go. You too can can achieve that. <laughs> um, and finally, our last question: What one thing from the 1990s would you most like to bring back? Oh well, I, there's and again only one answer to this. Uh, as the father of someone who's shortly going to be going into higher education, I'd bring back uh, paid tuition fees. <laughs> um, absolutely, you know, it's it enabled me to go to university. I was the first person in my entire family to even do A levels, mm-hmm. let alone go to university. But if I'd had to pay for those tuition fees, well, that that just wouldn't have been an option, you know, because yeah, yeah. that would be the equivalent of going to private school or something, and it just wasn't there. I would have just gone into a, an ordinary job, and, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. But in terms of what I can offer people, you know, you've got those paid, and then you do do summer job and amass some money in a summer job, whatever waiting tables or working in a pub, whatever. And you know, accommodation was cheap back then when I was there. You know, I was paying nineteen pounds a week for rent, you know, and and you just live on baked potato. You live on a baked potato from the student union bar, one pound twenty five, cheese and beans. Yeah, um, and that's what you know. You you could live pretty cheaply. And you still had housing benefit then as well, mm-hmm. possibly in the summer if you'd stayed at university over the summer, you know. And it just allowed that time for people to kind of to grow, you know, whether artistically, whether you know, however, what they wanted to do. And so, the notion that it comes with a, a very hefty price tag attached to it now is 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 very sad to me. And yes, so uh, I'm saving hard because we yeah, <laughs> we've got we've got two going into it, but. Um, Yes, that's the thing I'd bring back because I think that just allows a world, a world that I didn't know, to suddenly be open. You know, I've become a journalist and author. I didn't know any journalists and authors at all. I'm t- I haven't got any journalism qualifications. I'm just kind of self-taught, and it's it's me wanting to do it. It's just pushing it, you know. And I think you know, it's that whole ten thousand hours of of practice, and you can become a brilliant guitarist. Work. Mm-hmm. That's what you do. Right, you just keep writing and writing and writing, and eventually it all kind of clicks and it calls into place. It's just the ones who prepared to put in all that time that can do it and uh, but that world wouldn't have even been open to me mm. you know had I had I, you know had I, I certainly wouldn't have gone to the US you know <laughs> wouldn't have been able to afford that um, so I'm, I'm a lucky man you know basically managed to get on the housing ladder when houses were dirt cheap and you know I know, I know I'm from a fortunate generation I know that bring back paid tuition fees so say all of us yes absolutely, absolutely. 
Nigel, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you tonight. Thank, Thank you, you so Stuart. much for making the time. Hey, I really no appreciate it. I've enjoyed your work so much over the past few years since I've come across it, and it's been a pleasure to get to know you as well in, in the intervening time online, and, and to meet you tonight has been a real real privilege for me. Um, I would, Stuart. of course, encourage all listeners to seek out Nigel's work, uh, especially uh, Field of Dreams, latest one. Just before we go, what, what's next in the pipeline? Are you working on anything at the moment? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm contracted for two more books at the moment. I am, there's one, mu it's music again. What I do is tend to alternate between music and sport, because that mm -hmm. way I can do one a year. So if I, if I just did music, so the hardback would come out one year and the, the paperback the next yep. year. So I couldn't do a new other music one because right. that would get in the way. My audience does cross over, you know, you, you read both, both lots, um, but it's not a direct competitor. So uh, we're back to music for the next one. I cannot tell you what it's about, though. Okay. Certainly not on air, just because it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it doesn't come out till August of next year. So we wouldn't want anyone trying to get in the of way course, of that. Of course. Um, but uh, once that machine goes stop, I will, I will trust your confidence of and, course. and let you know. Yeah. It stops here, absolutely. <laughs> what, what goes in the Queen's Head inbox stays in the Queen's Head inbox. Um, Nigel, again, an absolute privilege. Thank you so much. Brilliant. Mate. Thanks, dude. Loved Thank it. You. Cheers. So many thanks to Nigel for spending some time with us to talk about his version of the 90s. What an interview. You can see why I enjoyed it. Uh, an absolute cracker, yeah. Yeah, really fantastic. I mean, what a guest. In an unusual move for the pod, we are able to tell you about what's going to be happening next time. Uh, we're going to be heading off for our second annual summer party, aren't we, Alex? That's absolutely true, So Yes, we're going back to the same location of our first summer party, the Three Crowns in Chippenham, where we will be hosting our first ever 90s quiz. So there will be prizes to be won. And however the rest of the Funhouse team goes, I can't remember. <laughs> we'll have some in-person quizzes and or quizzes, as actually they're more commonly known. I prefer and, quizzes. I think we should go with that. <laughs> yeah, we'll go with that for now. It sounds like something you, you know, rub on your body somewhere. <laughs> quizzes, yeah. Which if you had, if you had a particularly rough quiz, you'll put some quizzes <laughs> on. So there'll be some in-person quizzes, but we'll also make sure we edit it in such a way that you can enjoy it from the comfort of your own home and take part and we will as i say give out prizes that'll be including people who are there in person but also you the listeners so we will be asking you to mark your own quizzes and submitting your results and we will find a winner based on that but it's it should be a lot of fun absolutely can't wait we've got a great list of guests for the quiz and um, yeah really looking forward to getting stuck in with that if you want to get in touch with us about anything you've heard on this episode or any previous topics, maybe you want to get involved in the snack food debate or the most 90s soft drink, anything at all, you know you can find us on our link tree. There is a link in the episode description below that links to all of our social media. So please do get in touch and let us know your thoughts. Yes, please do. We'd love to hear from you regarding anything about the 90s. That's it for now. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time and until the summer quiz, it's goodbye from me. I'm just off to go and fetch my tube of quizzies. <laughs> and I'm just off to write some quiz questions. <laughs> Bye for now. Here we go. That's the end. Thank you so much for listening once again. His head's gone. His head's gone. <laughs>